Good morning. We're going to get started on our Bible school this morning. <clears throat> Just waiting for some people to come in. <laughs> Hope you all are doing good today. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1 this morning. If you want to, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the first chapter, Gospel of Luke. Yep. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 20 this morning. Uh, for those who would like to read in preparation for next week, uh, that scripture lesson will be Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80, uh, is next week's lesson, Luke 1, 57 through 80. Today we're going to be in... Luke 1, verses 8 through 20. A popular claim is that uh, history repeats itself. Uh, when we use that phrase, um, how do we use it or why, why do we use it? What circumstances? Usually it's negative. That something okay, bad. yeah, that something bad happened and now oh, it's here we go again, right? Yeah, we're, we see that with the cycles of, of time through, with uh, ancient civilizations and the rise and fall of, of those uh, things and how, how it affected um, each part of history. Uh, we use that phrase sometimes even in our own lives or, or for uh, maybe our family members. Oh, there they go again, history repeating itself because <laughs> we know that maybe something bad was done in the past and now the same thing's happening again with that same person. But does that claim really hold up? Does history actually repeat itself? Exactly. No, no we're, we're more concerned with the sentiment, aren't we? With, with the, the circumstance and, and trying to make a correlation. So uh, I think it's interesting here, this, this writer mentions that history doesn't really repeat itself. History rhymes. So it's, it's, it's similar sometimes in how things happen, but the, nothing happens exactly the same way. And, and uh, in the, very, the similarities may exist between two things, two events, but history does not exactly repeat itself. Events in God's plan of salvation are frequently similar to God's earlier work among his people. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament that are shadows of what ends up happening in the New Testament. We refer to those things sometimes as typology. Um, anyone heard of that, that term or re recognize what that means? And we use the, the term typology. What, is that, what does that refer to? It's a religious term, religious world term. Um, you'll, you'll find it in religious writings. If you use commentary, sometimes they'll mention typologies. Um, where something uh, like Moses delivered the people, Israelites out of Egypt. Moses was a type of Christ because he was a savior of God's people. Jesus is our savior. Um, we can look at uh, Noah and his family uh, from what 1 Peter chapter 3 says about how Noah and his family were saved through water. And now what does 1 Peter 3.21 say? That it's like baptism. baptism 
that now saves you. Yeah. So that's a typology. It's an Old Testament idea, a shadow of what ends up happening in the New Testament. So the, these uh, correlations um, are frequent throughout the Scripture. God used events in the past that, that would relate to things that were very similar in the New Covenant. Um, doing a, an in-depth study of the tabernacle or the temple is very interesting when, when we think about typology and how God used the, the specific things in the tabernacle, the, the furniture, um, the, the, the altar of burnt offerings and the, and the laver the, that they would wash in, uh, the altar of incense. It, the, the laver is a representation of, of baptism. The, uh, the, the altar of incense, what would that be a representation of? Prayer, Prayer for us, because we're, we're told that our prayers are like a pleasing aroma that goes up to God, the, the table of showbread, but what's, what's that a possible correlation to? Communion. Our communion time, yeah, take, partaking of the bread. Um, the, the Holy of Holies, being able to enter into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. We're able to do that directly today because of the access Christ has made to us. Uh, be, because of what he did onto the, on the cross. So there, there's a lot of correlation between Old Testament ideas and similarities that uh, would relate to things that end up happening in the New Covenant. And God is, is no... Um, everything has a purpose. He, he doesn't do things just for happenstance. There's a purpose behind it. There's a reason behind it. And it all works towards his plan and the more that we see that in Scripture, the more in awe we will be of who He is and, and what He has done for us. His work is a grand plan to bring rebellious, sinful man into His holy people. Today's Scripture text highlights one of these rhythms that we were talking about of God's plan. Would the recipient of this good news trust that God would be faithful to his promises? So the Gospel of Luke is one of two gospel accounts that describe Jesus' birth account. What's the other one? Find it in Luke? Matthew. Matthew, very good. Yes, Matthew uh, chapter 1. Luke's account uh, includes the events, the birth of Jesus' cousin, we're going to focus on today, John the Baptist. Both pregnancies were announced by an angel. And Bible, little Bible trivia there. Who, does anybody know who the angel was? The name of the angel? Gabriel. Yeah, Gabriel. The um, pregnancies were announced by Gabriel. They were accompanied by great wonders. They had prepared the people for God's salvation. Luke's gospel opens by way of introducing Zechariah, the father of John, and a priest in the division of Abijah. Zechariah and other priests descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses. Over the centuries, Aaron's descendants became numerous to the point that they could not all serve in the temple at the same time. And at one point, uh, King David organizes the priests. So you can go back and read this in 1 Chronicles 24. Uh, there became so many priests, that not all of them could physically work in the temple all at the same time. And so David had to separate them into these 24 divisions of service so that they would 
sort of take their turn, so to speak, to serve in the temple. And these divisions required adjustments uh, following their time in captivity. When they come back, they have to readjust, the, you know, depending on who's still alive and what family members did end up coming back and staying. Um, and those divisions end up continuing until New Testament times. Then every division would serve in the temple for roughly two non-consecutive weeks every year. And the assigned priests would complete the necessary task for the temple. They would accept the, uh, the offerings and the sacrifices. Uh, they would be part of burning incense and leading the prayer times. Uh, that would happen during the day. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth also, um, who was also a descendant of Aaron, were righteous in the sight of God, we're told, and blameless regarding obeying his commands. And the couple was without children due to their ages and Elizabeth's barrenness. All right, so let's pick up in verse 8, Luke chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn the incense. And so this is why I explained why there were these divisions. The Bible mentions it here. His division was the, the one that was serving and on duty as the, the priest before God. And he's one that is chosen among all the, the priests that were there to offer this specific uh, opportunity to go in and burn incense. The, uh, the renovation and the expansion of the temple of the Lord in Jesus' day began during the reign of... Does anybody know who, who built... Because there's, there's three main temp divisions when we think about the temple. There, who, who built the, the original temple? Solomon. Solomon built it. Yeah, David collected all of the goods, didn't he? And God told him, but uh, David, you've got too much blood on your hands, right? So you're not going to build the temple. Uh, so he gave that charge to Solomon, and Solomon built, we call that the first temple, Solomon's temple. And it was a grand temple. It, was, it had a lot of, a lot of uh, very ornate things, a part of it. But then that temple ends up being destroyed, doesn't it? The Babylonians come in, and about 586 B.C., that temple's destroyed. And then when they come back, who do we credit with building the second temple? temple? Zerubbabel. Yeah, Zerubbabel. A man named Zerubbabel comes back. He's architect, or the, the builder in charge of the, the second temple construction and rebuilding it. And then it, this expansion happens. Um, Right as Jesus is coming on the scene, um, a man named, anybody know? Herod, Herod the Great. Okay, so the, Herod's temple ends up being built and uh, expands what Zerubbabel had done. And this expansion took at least 46 years, we're told in John chapter 2, verse 20. He used the temple as a political and religious tool to gain support from the Jewish people. And the, the layout of Herod's temple was very similar to what Solomon did. And the temple complex consisted of a lot of outer corridors. If you look this up, they, there's drawings, images of this that you can look at online. 
if you look up just Google Herod's temple and you'll see how ornate it was, uh, all the different colonnades and areas around the outside of the temple. Different things took place in these different areas. Um, the largest porch it was named Solomon's Colonnade. Uh, we read about this uh, over in Acts chapter 3. Um, and uh, a building that housed the, the inner sanctuaries was uh, in the center of this temple. Twice daily, the priest would enter the outer sanctuary and they would burn incense on the altar of incense. And this kept going on uh, since God gave these directions uh, to Moses. They, they, they started this burning of incense uh, back during the tabernacle times, and then it continued all the way through, uh, even this time in the temple. And this rising smoke and the fragrant aroma represented the people's prayers going up before God. Because of the numerous priests, the custom of drawing lots determined the priests would fulfill this duty. Now, this, this wasn't a lottery. This wasn't gambling. This was just a, a way that they had determined who, who would serve for that day um, to just make it a fair decision as to who would go in. And this chosen priest would fill this role only one time in his life. And so th this was a, a very special honorable position for Zechariah to, to be in. Um, this is something that every priest looked forward to, that he would be the one that would be chosen for that, spe that special service for that day. And it was a high honor to be chosen. Verse 10, it says, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And because only the chosen priest would enter the holy place where the altar of incense was, the assembled worshipers would scatter around in the outside of the area and they would um, burn incense in the, the open court areas as well and then offer prayers. And the people were restricted to various outer courts uh, because God had these special requirements that only certain people could go into certain parts of the temple. And so that's why um, the, uh, the worshipers were outside praying. It mentions that. Verse 11 says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So we have this heavenly visitor that shows up on the scene. We're told specifically it's an angel. And um, it's interesting that, that uh, Luke says that he appeared on the right side. Now what's significant? Why, why not just say an angel appeared? Why say he appeared on the right side? It's not a complicated question. There's no special answer to it. Possibly the right side is a show of authority or a show of power to be on the right-hand side of something. I think it just has to do with the fact that Luke wanted to be specific. Luke's a doctor. Um, throughout his gospel, you know, we even... Uh, see uh, things like uh, when he talked about the, the spear that went up into Christ. You know, they jabbed him with the, with the spear when he was on the cross. And Luke says that both water and blood came out, making the point to let us know that his 
his knowledgeable opinion as a doctor, he, he knew that the, the pericardium had been pierced when that spear went up into Christ's heart, signifying that there's absolutely no way that, that he could have survived that, as skeptics sometimes say. So Luke is very specific in his gospel. And to write when he's, when he's interviewing Zechariah about this account, maybe years later as he's writing this down uh, for us, He's making a point to say, hey, I even know Zechariah told me which side this angel appeared on. He appeared on the right side, not on the left side, not in the middle. And so it's just an interesting thing to see how specific uh, these accounts are uh, at times and to to just uh, realize that it's important uh, that we understand these are real events and these are real uh, things that that happened. And... um, Luke wants us to know that. He wants the readers, especially those who would be the skeptic, would would notice this. So this angel of the Lord was a representative of God. And when uh, verse 12 says, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. Now, why would he have this feeling of fear? An angel of the Lord, he's a heavenly messenger. Zachariah is in there. He's offering this incense. Why, why would he be afraid? What's that? Yeah, okay. First of all, I'm the one that was chosen for this. Why is somebody else in here? Okay, and then second of all, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is, that's possible. Um, there's tradition I don't know that there's anywhere in Scripture that says this. I've never myself seen it. But there's tradition that says that they would tie a rope around the priests when they would go in to the the Holy of Holies or into the most holy place so that if something did happen, if they did something wrong, they they didn't clean themselves completely, didn't put on the right garments, you know, whatever it was, didn't offer the right incense, that God, if God struck them dead they'd be able to pull him back out <laughs> because anybody else that went in there could suffer the same fate because they weren't supposed to be in there. Only the appointed person at the appointed time was supposed to go in there. God was very specific about who could go in and when they could go in. And, so, and they took that serious, so serious to the point where they want to make sure they could get that body back out if they needed to, if something went wrong. So these guys had a, a very... Uh, high regard, a, a, a fearful respect, a deep sense of respect when they would go into the, these areas of service. And this feeling of fear probably also came upon him because what do we know about angels? When angels appear in the scripture, what, what's the typical reaction? What, what happens? Everyone's always scared when they see an angel. Yeah. Yeah, that, that most of the time. Uh, there are a few accounts um, where possibly someone spoke to an angel and they didn't really know it. Um, and we're even warned of that, aren't we? Hebrews tells us that we need to be careful when we're entertaining someone. We may be entertaining an angel. So people often wonder, does God still work today with angels? Does his, do his heavenly messengers uh, perform these acts of service? Absolutely. Uh, they, they, do, they fight those spiritual battles on our behalf every single day, uh, that, the spiritual war that we fight. 
but they also act in, on God's behalf uh, for specific uh, tasks of service. And uh, so this, this angel comes, he appears to him. Um, we're not told exactly how he appears to him, whether it's in a, a bodily form, maybe he looks like a man, maybe he kept his angelic appearance, and that's why he's afraid. Um, if you go into the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and you read about the different types of angels and you, and you look at what Revelation says about the angels that are surrounding the throne of God, what are some of the images that, that, you, that you get? What do they look like? What do these writers describe the angels as? Anyone? Go and look that up sometime. It's very interesting. See what the cherubim, the seraphim, there's several other different kinds of angels that are mentioned. But they, they always have uh, wings, sometimes multiple wings. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, what may be considered very scary images you know, sometimes as to what those angels might look like. But they, they appear very brilliant when they appear. Um, and the, the typical reaction is a reaction of fear. Um, and it should, it, and that, that should be such because uh, the, the power associated with angels is always highly respected in the Scripture. And um, we have that example uh, where one angel killed 185,000 in the Assyrian army in the Old Testament. And so the, the destruction that is capable of um, the, the judgment that is, that is brought about by angels should cause us to have a very deep respect for angels. <coughs> Such a reaction was common when a person in the Scripture experienced the appearance of, the, of an angel of the Lord. And so it shouldn't uh, surprise us that it's any different here with Zechariah. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid. And that, that's usually the response, isn't it? Uh, that's what happened when, remember, when angels appeared to the shepherds out in the flocks. They were tending their flocks by night. And the angel appears to them and they, it says they were so afraid. And then the angel told them, don't be afraid, and told them the good news. <clears throat> so it's the typical response that the angels provide a, a word of comfort. Um, the text is unclear which particular prayer of Zechariah had been heard by God. Zechariah and Elizabeth had likely prayed countless times for a child of their own. Um, they're advanced in years at this point, and, and maybe they had even given up on this prayer a long time ago. Maybe Zechariah had forgotten about this, this prayer, and uh, God is finally answering it. In a, in a timing, just much like with Abraham and Sarah, in a way that would be completely contrary to anything that, that they were praying for in the past. It's unknown whether they continue praying this request. Um, having a child of their own was out of the question at this time. But um, it's possible that the prayer that Zechariah prayed uh, at the altar of incense was concerning uh, Israel's future or Israel's salvation in general. Uh, because he's in there providing this, this incense on behalf of all the people. Um, but whatever the content of Zechariah's prayer was, God answered the prayer in the way that ends up addressing both of those desires. Because God gives them the desire that they had to, to have a son. 
but also, what does John's purpose end up being? How does John end up helping the, the salvation of God's people in general? What does he do? What's his, what's his overall purpose? Become. He prepares the people before Jesus comes. Yeah, he gets their hearts and their minds ready to prepare them for the way of the Lord. Uh, prophecy in the Old Testament talks about this. And um, he becomes the one that would fulfill the, this idea that the Messiah is coming. And, and he's going to, to make a big impact in that. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. The angel's declaration that Elizabeth would bear a son was likely very surprising to Zechariah. And um, the announcement of a child to an elderly, childless couple uh, is not something foreign in Scripture, as we just talked about. God could work such a miracle. The name John was common among men in the New Testament. Uh, we have several in the, in the New Testament. Um, but uh, John was, was a very common name at that time. And the name likely came from the name Johanan, the meaning which describes God's graciousness. Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, were to experience God's grace in the birth of their son. Now, um, you ask the question here, he says, how can believers remain faithful in prayer even if their prayers are not answered on their preferred timetable? Because this, this, what happens here to Zachariah and Elizabeth, I mean, obviously they've been praying, they wanted a son. Um, what, what man, especially man in leadership position like Zachariah, wouldn't want a son to carry on the family during this time? And... Um, it makes us think about how, how can we remain faithful in prayer even if that prayer isn't answered in, the, in that timetable that we want it to be answered in. And they, they certainly didn't expect this chain of events to happen, but how can we learn from this? How can we stay faithful in those circumstances? Anybody? Okay. Yeah. 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 We have to have a lot of patience, don't we? God has patience with us, don't we? So we we have patience in whenever we're in prayer. What else? Anybody else? How can we stay faithful in prayer? We just have to trust that he knows what he's doing. Okay. Um, that it might not be his will what we want, but mm -hmm. we can keep asking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we study a lot of things when I'm in prayer. Mm -hmm. We can set expectations with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. The, there's anything, any uh, account like this that has the, the, the idea of prayer, it's a big part of it. Yeah, we can read those and think about how God used those circumstances. Um, specifically with this one, 
if God would have answered their prayer as they wanted it answered long before this, back when they were in their 20s, what would have happened? What would have been the situation? No, no one might have been there to prepare the way for Jesus. Possibly. Yeah, certainly. If, if it was John, it certainly wouldn't have been John that he could have used. Yeah. Okay, okay, possibly, uh, because of how the, the stories are correlated. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure um, exactly how that would affect it, but there, there's that, there is the, the option of, of time. If we, look at, if we look at how God used John the Baptist and how close in age he was to Jesus, John wouldn't have been right there in the same timeline with Christ. And when he got old enough to you know, start his ministry, um, what John had done would have been long gone and maybe forgotten and wouldn't have really prepared anything for Christ. Yeah. There wouldn't have been the miracles. They would have been young. Yeah. And they would have just thought, hey, this is mm-hmm. natural. This is when you know, you have relations and conceive. Yeah. So yeah, it wouldn't have been a... Yeah. Yeah. There, and then there's the other aspect of Elizabeth and Mary, pregnant at the same time. She's able to help her, comfort her, in in her situation. And so yeah, there are a lot of lot of uh, things that would not have been possible with God's plan and His timetable if they had had this child a long time before this. And so we we can learn from those circumstances, and, and we need to be faithful in prayer um, regardless of, of how long it takes or how God may answer that prayer. Verse 14, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. The birth of John the Baptist would have a much wider impact than simply just being a, a child to this couple who was not previously able to conceive, uh, many other people would rejoice because of his purpose and his role in the kingdom in declaring God's plan for his people. Uh, John the Baptist would not, bring in the, along, would not bring the long-awaited salvation to God's people. Instead, he would be the forerunner preparing the way for salvation through Christ alone. Uh, let's turn over to John, um, Luke, Luke 3. Verses 15 through 18, if somebody could read those for us. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Okay. Baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His 
winnowing fork. Yeah, winnowing fork, yep. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we're we're good. Yeah, so so John basically his he he his purpose ends up becoming the one who would declare this greater one that's coming after him, and who he I love that I love that phrase one whose sandals I am not fit to even tie. And so it gives us an idea of his humility and who this man was, the type of person he was, the type of preacher that he was. He was very stern, especially to those who, who knew better, the, the Jews um, who, who would not accept the Messiah coming. John was very, very direct with them, uh, wasn't afraid to tell them, you know, you, you're wrong, and this is, Christ is coming, and you need to listen to what I'm saying. Um, but he also was uh, very gracious and a very humble person. Continue with verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So John's great standing would not be measured by worldly standards of success. What type of person do we know him to be? What, what, is, what type of person does he become physically? What, what is John described as, I guess, later on in Scripture. A wild man. Yeah, it says he's a, a ruddy-looking sort of man, uh, a man's man, an, out, an outdoorsman, uh, probably somebody who wore a... Uh, sometimes we see him depicted in, in shows or movies where he, he's got on a kind of animal skin over him, a, it's a bear fur or something, and big beard and kind of rough-looking guy. Um, and he, what does he eat? Told he's out in the wilderness and locusts. Yeah, he, yeah, he eats locusts and wild honey. That's his regular diet. He doesn't have time to to make bread and worry about you know building a house or anything. He's he's got work to do, and it's very serious about his purpose and the the task that he had. Years later, though, uh, Jesus reiterates this prophecy that he would be great in the sight of the Lord. Uh, if we turn over uh, to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, <clears throat> and uh, if somebody could read verse 24, verse 24 through 28. John 7, or Luke 7, verse 24 through 28. Okay, let me read it, Bill.
Okay, so what do we learn from this scripture? Not only was he prophesied about, that's from Malachi chapter 3, that there would be one that would go ahead of Christ preparing the way for him. But what do we learn here? What does Christ describe him as? Yeah, yeah, one of the greatest that has ever lived. There's no other person born of woman greater than John. So this rugged, kind of gruff guy, this picture that we get of somebody that's out in the wilderness, this should give us an indication of what does Christ consider important as far as this life is concerned? Yeah, the heart. Staying true to his purpose. Staying true to what he wants us to do, what he wants us to accomplish. And uh, we can learn a lot from John and his dedication. John's greatness in the sight of the Lord would come from his role as the person who would announce the good news of the arrival of God's Son. He, we're told he wasn't to take wine or other fermented drink. What, what is this a possible allusion to, that he wouldn't take any fermented drink? Yes, a Nazarite vow. Uh, this was part of the Nazarite vow. Um, trying to remember the other part. You couldn't cut your hair. Couldn't cut any, any part of your hair. Um, couldn't touch anything dead. Right? Couldn't touch anything, anything unclean. Um, couldn't take fermented drink was another part of that vow. And so they think possibly because of this um, that, that John um, tried to keep that type of vow, uh, but we're not told exactly. The law of Moses described two specific situations when a person would make a vow of abstinence from alcohol. Um, the priests were to avoid alcohol. They weren't to take any kind of fermented drink um, during their service to God. And then these, the Israelites who would take the vow of the Nazarite. And both priests and Nazarites were set apart from others in order to serve God and His holy people. And I always like to make the point when we discuss this idea, priests weren't supposed to partake of a fermented drink. Uh, those who ascribed to the Nazarite vow, who were set apart for a specific purpose like John, weren't supposed to partake of fermented drink. Christians today, this is a strong one of those Old Testament allusions that points to a New Testament idea, what are we referred to as? A priesthood of all believers. I'm a priest. You're a priest. You have spiritual acts of service that you're supposed to be performing on behalf of your Lord. There's a strong indication we shouldn't have anything to do with fermented drink. That's just, that's Covey's 25 cent commentary on that. But <clears throat> it's, a, it's one of those things that we should really think about. Uh, not only that, but you know, what other parts of the New Testament talk about as far as our example and how we are to be a people set apart from the world in all those er types of areas. So ver going on with uh, verse 15 that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. So instead of being filled with alcohol, instead of being filled with spirits, John's going to be filled with 
the Holy Spirit. Scripture um, was fulfilled here um, that he would uh, serve as a prophet of God even before he was born. So while in his mother's womb, he leaped for joy, we're told, in the presence of the unborn Savior. That's Luke 1, 44. Verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. So the angel's message transitions from who John would become and what he, to what he would do now. And as John's messenger, John would call his own people, the children of Israel, to return to God. And part of his message um, warned the people that their being Abraham's descendants wasn't enough, uh, just as an indicator of the presence of true repentance, that, uh, that he, would bring, he would bring many people back to God. I want to get here to these last couple of verses. So verse 17, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that would be part of his purpose and his, his desire as a prophet. And in verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel. Now he, it's important here to see Zechariah... Um, he didn't outright uh, defy the angel. Um, he didn't laugh at him like Sarah did. He asked this question, though, and this question's enough to point to some doubt. And he said, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And so the angel's promises appeared impossible to him. He desired a sign to be sure that his promises would come true. And if the couple could not become pregnant before, then how are they going to be pregnant now? And so he's basically challenging what the angel is saying. He's challenging God, what God is, is uh, prophesying here through this angel and telling him what's going to happen. And we can contrast that with the announcement to Mary. And what, what was Mary's response? when she was told that she was going to give birth miraculously to a child. Okay, I've never been with a man before, but how did she accept it? In the end, she said, I'm, your, I'm the Lord's servant. Yeah, yeah, she he humbly accepted it and said, okay. Now, out of the two, who should have known better of God's abilities and past history to do these types of things. Zachariah should have. But how does he accept it? Hmm, really? This is this going to happen to me? So we, we, we have to learn from this that the more <clears throat> mature we become as Christians, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that God is able to, to do the impossible. <coughs> Excuse me. We can't lose sight of the fact that we have to have just as strong of a faith in what the Lord's capable of. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. And so he throws out his credentials, basically. <coughs> we know of um, Gabriel is one of only two angels mentioned in Scripture. Their names. 
What's the other one? Michael, the archangel. And so um, this uh, angel Gabriel, uh, who's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, um, back in Daniel, gives Zechariah this uh, stern warning, basically, that, hey, this is going to happen because I'm the archangel of the Lord, and I'm telling you it's going to happen, and you need to accept this. And so he said, now you will be silent, and you'll not be able to speak until the day that this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their point of time. So he delivers judgment based on his doubt. And just another warning for us. We, we uh, pray to the Lord, and, and, the, and we need to trust that the Lord will answer it the way that he wants it to be answered in his plan. And Zechariah ends up becoming the very sign that he wanted. As he, he wanted the, some, how do I know this is going to happen? Well, you're going to know because you're going to be mute until the day that the child's born. And we know, according to Luke 1, verse 62, that he, he probably lost his hearing as well because they had to use signs, some kind of signs to communicate with him. All right, we'll end there. God frequently calls the, the unassuming or the seemingly ill-equipped. And Zachariah and his family were yet another example of this, of those who least expected God to work through them in a miraculous way. Uh, of course, we are not the parents of the forerunner of Christ, but Zechariah's story shows us that God will work through our lives as well. And will we doubt that God is serious when he calls us to fulfill his plan, or will we believe and trust that God, who often has worked through ordinary people, will work the extraordinary through us as well? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this account in uh, your word. helps us to, to recognize so many things, to to check our own faith and our own patience uh, when it comes to prayer. We pray, Father, that you would use each one of us for a specific purpose in your kingdom and that we would uh, do what we can, as John did, to uh, proclaim the, the Lord and to proclaim what Christ did for us on the cross. Uh, we thank you for our time together today and pray that it would be a blessing to each one and that you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.